Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. If I had to say, why meditate? I'd say meditation, in my experience, is the best way to train in uncertainty. And the other flip side of that is it's the best training in how to love. As some of you guys may have picked up uh, over a period of months or years hanging out together, I'm a little bit interested, okay, actually strike that, maybe even a little bit fascinated with Buddhism. So anytime I get the opportunity to sit down with somebody who really lives that path and has lived it in the real world, I take that opportunity. This week's guest, my friend Lojo Rinsler, is somebody who actually really came up in the practice and instead of taking a monastic path, has returned to the world and really explored how does the idea of Buddhism, the philosophy, the teachings, how does that intersect with our ability to actually live a really powerful, really engaged, compassionate, alive life in the real world on a day-to-day basis? And how does it affect our relationships both with ourselves and with other people? That's part of the conversation in today's episode. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. There is really only one logical jumping off point for this conversation, and that is 
You are a long-time devout Buddhist who at one point, I believe, even did the whole monastic vows, shaved head thing, yet you have a cat named Justin Bieber. <laughs> that is the only jumping off There's point. really no other yeah, jumping no, off point. point. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I actually, this is the sort of things that keep me up at night. I woke up and I thought, are Justin Bieber and Usher still friends? Is he still mentoring Justin Bieber? And I don't know why I have, like, as soon as this... Canadian pop star emerged. I happened to be getting a cat, and I thought this this guy is somehow going to be some weird cultural phenomena, for better or worse. And we were like, "All right, let's let's name the cat Justin Bieber," <laughs> and it stayed with me. But you know what? As you said, like I do a lot of teaching, and sometimes very like very stuffy places, very religious places sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then you know they say all of my various. He wrote these books and taught for this long. And then they say, and he has a cat named Justin Bieber. And at least we open with a laugh every time. <laughs> and so it's a perfect line. Yes. <laughs> and it says something about you. It's really funny, too, that you bring that up about sort of like the seriousness. Because I feel like, and you've been so much deeper into the world of spirituality and faith and just consciousness than I have for a, a lot of time. But I feel like, you know, I was in the yoga world for a chunk of time and got exposed to that world, to meditation and to teaching. And um, I feel like there's this perception from the outside looking in that the real, like, fill in the blank, the real Buddhist, the real yoginis, the real, they're serious, they're austere. But the more that I sort of learn, the more that I study, the more I come in contact with people who I feel are really connected to source, they're so light. They're the goofy, silly, funny. They hold life so lightly. Is that just my experience, or is that kind of like a broader... I think you nailed it. And, you know, you and I met when you had Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche on your site, and we met at his home, and you could just see that there's constant celebration happening. Like, it was not a serious place, you know? At this point, he has three daughters that are all, like, young daughters running around acting like young daughters. And it's just, there's some sense of constant rejoicing happening in his presence. And, you know, there are times where... I'll go and see him, and it'll just be some office somewhere, and we'll meet for a bit. And it'll feel like I walked into a party, even though it's just him and me. <laughs> and then I'll walk out and be like, oh, I'm missing the party now. <laughs> and there's some, I think the really advanced practitioners that I've met, they have that sense of lightness to their being, that they are able to celebrate their life in a very basic way. It's not like they have something specific they need to celebrate. They can just have an appreciation for who they are mm. and the environment that they're in. Yeah, I love that. And for those who don't know the Sakyong, who is he? Sakyong Mipam Rinpoche is the head of the Shambhala Buddhist lineage, and he is the author of about three bazillion books, <laughs> and a marathon runner, and a wonderful father and husband. And he's a great role model for me as my teacher, because he is able to bring together this very deep meditation tradition and very serious teachings with having this householder being that he is able to show up fully for his family. It's not like the meditation practice is sorted out into one area of his life and then he goes and he's got this other thing on the side. It's like every aspect of his life, his work, his family, his relationship is all part of his practice. So it's always been, it's been wonderful to study with him for the last, at this point it's going on half my lifetime. Hmm. I'm 103 years old and no, I'm kidding. I'm only <laughs> 32 and um, I started studying it with him at a very young age and it's been, it's been an honor to see that develop. 
So let's take a little step back in time then. Mm-hmm. Tell me how you first, um, well, where'd, where'd you grow up actually? Where are you from? Uh, you know, so I grew up on 86 between Park and Lex here in New York City. So a city, city boy. <laughs> yeah, I'm a city boy. We moved upstate when I was 10, but my parents, it's actually sort of a funny story. My mother was doing yoga teacher training back in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. And so who was she studying with at that point? Gosh, I don't even know within the yoga world. Because it wasn't like it is now. No, not at all. <laughs> it was very serious. And in order for her to graduate from the from the training, she had to go sit a full weekend meditation retreat with this guy called Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche in Vermont. So she, this is like sort of an outrageous request, I guess, these days. But she would pack up and she went up and uh, sat this retreat and was like, meh, whatever, meditation. This isn't really my thing. She had an interview with him one-on-one at the end. This is a very traditional Tibetan Buddhist teacher who's actually the father of Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche. And he asked her what her experience was, and she thought, you know, it's, it's, it was okay. And he started laughing, just really laughing. She thought he was laughing at her. She got very angry. She got so angry that she decided to go back the next weekend, sit another full retreat, have that one-on-one interview at the end again, just to tell him off, and then she fell in love with meditation. <laughs> and a number of years later Mission accomplished Mission accomplished she, in order, she moved up there My father was courting her And would have to go up there So they both fell into this Buddhist world And I was raised Buddhist mm-hmm. So even though I, you know, they were both raised Jewish I was raised Buddhist within that household So I've been practicing meditation since I was six years old Wow What's it like? Because you're growing up a kid, um, Upper East Side of Manhattan, and then again, eventually up there. But that's not the norm. It's not the norm now. It's much more. It's it's much more normal now, and it's you know completely open. It's people are actually fascinated and intrigued by it and accept it. But when you're a kid, I'm assuming that this is a pretty. It's a very different way for you to be living in the world. Yeah. Yes and no. I, I feel like. There's some element of misconception, and maybe this perpetuates to to today. I don't think it's as bad as it used to be. It used to be you would say Buddhist, and people would think almost like Shaolin monks in movies fighting each other, something like that. So there was a lot of explaining growing up, particularly in my teen years. But, you know, there's something sort of magical, because within the Buddhist world, there's this underlying belief that, yes, we get confused, yes, there's suffering, yes, there's pain, But underneath all that, we're innately peaceful. We're innately good. Mm. So the idea that we're basically good, to impart that in a kid, that they're not basically messed up, that they're not sort of inherently wrong, it was actually a wonderful upbringing. It was like there was the culture, one would say, of no mistake. Like, yes, mistakes would be made, but inherently I wasn't bad. Mm. And I think that's sort of news we can use in society, particularly as we raise kids. Yeah, so it's really much more on you know, like the behavior wasn't the behavior that would be great, but but it's not you are a bad kid. It's the thing, this thing that just happened, you know, wasn't the best thing to happen. Yeah, it was confused. It was confused yeah. action as opposed to inherently bad. Yeah, which I think is it's. I was very lucky to have been raised with that mindset. Yeah. So when you moved out to, uh, you said at the upstate New York, yeah, was that related to finding a different community, or was that just something totally different? <laughs> I think I think my mother thought it was prettier, and it is. It is very pretty. <laughs> you know, at the time I was like ten years old, getting ripped away from my city life, and and now I can sort of go back and appreciate just how majestic being in nature is. You know, I, I moved back here to New York after a certain point, but 
There's something about uh, the environment being a support for one's state of mind. And if we are in a chaotic and aggressive environment, it's harder to find that sense of calm than if you are in nature, I find. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, there's a bunch of research now that actually even bolsters that on a physiological level, psychological level. You know, I live in a part of the city where two blocks one way is the river and then two blocks the other way is you know, a park, which is the size of your average town. Yeah. I can't imagine living in the city without those two. Mm-hmm. Um, but e- even with that, you feel there's this underlying just heightened stimulation and, and electricity that you kind of need to be able to step out of on a regular basis to reset. I wonder often how people who just are here 100% full-time, all the time, all in, like, what does that do to you over time? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, there's a lot of research around elder communities, and I'm sure you've heard before that if you want to see what an environment does to you, look to your elders. You know, I was actually walking down the street in in your neighborhood, and I thought, wow, there are people who... um, are getting a little bit older and they don't look like they're holding up very well. Mm. There's something about particular environments that do wear us down over time, even if we're not conscious of it. So I think for me, it's been a a gradual process of figuring out how to take that space, whatever that means, getting to nature, getting back to the land, so to speak. Yeah. So as you're growing up as a kid and really becoming steeped in Buddhist teachings, Buddhist philosophy and traditions, I guess it's a difficult question to answer, but, you know, like, which is fundamentally, are you aware of the fact that you're sort of approaching the interactions with your friends, with the world, with everything around you differently than others? Or were you? Or do you, for you, I was just a kid, I was like everybody else, but there was something a little bit different. You know, it's like I didn't have anything to compare it to. It's not like we were Christian and then we were Buddhist. Right. Right. There wasn't a big shift. There was no contrast. As far as I was concerned, you know, mindful speech was something that was just talked about and... We would try and be careful if we were talking negatively about other people and things like that. That was just sort of part of the framework mm. of um, of the household. And my parents were never explicitly like, here's the five precepts. You need to go study this. You know, it was really on me to explore Buddhism and, and what I wanted to do in terms of my own spirituality, mm. which meant that I had my teenage rebellious years where I were like, wore a cross for no reason and went to temple to... <laughs> You know, this is like my great rebellion that I would go to the temple. Black you know? eyeshadow. Right. <laughs> dyed. I don't think I even had like permanent dyed hair. I had like something that you would like put in your hair that would make it right. blue for a little until you'd wash it again. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> These were my big rebellions. And then when I was 17, my parents knocked on my door and they said, you know, what are you doing this summer? I said, I don't know. And they said, well, you know, there's this monastery in Nova Scotia called Gampo Abbey. And uh, they've got a summer program. Maybe you should go up there. And I was like, I don't have anything else to do. And I think in their mind, it was, it would make for a great college essay, mm. you know, like our son went to the monastery and it did, you know, but it totally backfired because I fell in love with the Buddhist practices. And that's, that is when I shaved my head, took the robes, the whole nine yards and, um, you know, spent the summer primarily in silence and, and, um, eating in contemplative meals and all of these sorts of things. And I came back, went to college and all I did was Buddhism and meditation so it really like very expensive religious studies degree that I'm still paying off for meditation (laughs) (laughs) well you know to a certain extent uh, I guess we have to go through the experiences we have to go through and pay what we have to pay (laughs) to end up where we are were you ever tempted to make monastic life your life 
briefly. Yeah, I think because it was such a simple existence, and you know, as a teenager, how how ideal is it that like everything's sort of taken care of? You know, it's like yeah. it's a enclosed community. You don't have to do much but meditate. Um, it was very appealing. At this point, I realized that my path is more of a householder, mm. and I'm open to that. But there's something about the simplicity of that lifestyle that I greatly admire. And I think for people who are hearing this and thinking, maybe I should run off to a monastery, give it a try. <laughs> you know, like, why not? I think people should have the experience of really being with themselves, alone mm. with themselves in that way, even if they're in a monastic community. Yeah, I mean, it sounds, I, I haven't done that. In the back of my mind, there is a point in my life where I do expect to do it. I don't know for what period of time. But it's interesting also because the, you use a couple of different words now, like the life of a householder. And so my really rudimentary understanding of Buddhism is that one of the really unique elements is that there are these two distinct paths. You know, there's the monastic path, and then there's the householder path. Talk me through that a little bit. Yeah, you know, Within my particular tradition, it stems from two of the four main schools of Tibetan Buddhism, without getting like too jargony. One, the Nyingma path, was a bunch of wandering mendicants, basically. These yogis that were just sort of going about, studying with various teachers, practicing here and there, hanging out. Some people had family, some people didn't. And then there was the Kagyu lineage that was like, you know what? We should uh, all get together, and the way that we're going to get together is we should probably build a monastery and then it became a monastic tradition for many, many years. So I sort of feel like there's both of that running through my blood, just in terms of my own lineage, family, and spiritual. I don't think one is better or worse. We're at a really interesting time where it took several hundred years for Buddhism, for example, to go from India to Tibet. And it took on those various flavors. Some people would go householder and practice, and they would have a family and all of these things. And some people would, you know, get shipped off to the monastery at a very young age and just live there. Mm. And then we had this incredible disruption with the communist invasion, and many people fled to India and elsewhere. And now we have the great resources that we do in America, where we have essentially every Buddhist tradition is represented here. So here I am in New York City, and if I went to Chelsea, I could go study the Kadampa Center, I could go to the Shambhala Center, I could go to the Zen Center, all within an hour, because they're within a couple blocks of each other. Like, it used to be you'd have to travel ridiculous amounts of time and distances to do that. And here they all are. So it's, there are these big overarching, yes, there's monastic, yes, there's householder. But within that, there's so many different ways that Buddhism has spread that it's like we have the most beautiful sampler plate available to us in America right now. Yeah, which also brings up this question. Well, there are a couple of questions it brings up, but I want to ask the first one first, which is, and I don't know how you answer this, what is Buddhism? Like, what is you know, it's, like, it's like, do you have nine days to, to talk about the answer? Because you just right. sort of rattled off, you know, we've got two different distinctions, mm-hmm. classification, we've got, mm-hmm. you know, different types of Buddhism coming out of different countries. You know, is there some sort of unifying, like, this is really what it's all about? Yeah. You know, I remember not so long ago, I was invited to give a, a talk at a friend's school up in Harlem, and it was a bunch of third grade classes brought together for an assembly, and 
we were talking about so various tough, tough room. Yeah, tough <laughs> room. I mean, really, like in terms of the attention span. And uh, about halfway through, we were doing Q&A, and one kid raised his hand and goes, what's a bosom? <laughs> and I just thought, this is not the normal question I get. But I said, you know, I don't, I don't know if we should talk about that here. And then it came out that he was saying, what's Buddhism? Yeah. And he was like, okay, this is a really good exercise. How can I explain this for a third grader? And the very short form is, it's a religious tradition where we look to the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, as an example for someone who is able to wake up in a really big way to his personal suffering and societal suffering overall. When we talk about the Buddha getting enlightened or attaining nirvana, that's it. He was able to see past his layers of confusion and just tune into reality as it is, without filter. And... So we look to him as an example and say, well, if we do the practices that he laid out, like the meditation practice that I often teach, this is a way we could do that. We could actually be more present in our life, be kinder to others, and then ultimately become more awake overall. So it's a bunch of schools that have followed that example and the teachings that he laid out. And yes, there's you know the very traditional stuff that people might have studied in high school, like Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and all of that. But that's the... That's, Sort of the most straightforward way I can think of it. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Good Life Project is brought to you by LinkedIn Ads. So have you ever felt the challenge of reaching a key decision maker in the B2B world? Imagine connecting with a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders. Well, LinkedIn Ads provides precision targeting and measurement tools tailored for B2B marketers, outperforming other platforms with two to five times higher ROAS in technology. Plus, 79% of B2B content marketers vouch for LinkedIn Ads' exceptional paid media results. What sets LinkedIn Ads apart is their understanding of the complex B2B landscape. They have built a platform to support you through intricate decision-making processes. I've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times to help grow our work-focused venture, Spark Endeavors, and I've been seriously impressed by the performance. So if you're ready to elevate your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads. Make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Good Life Project is supported by Dell. So seasons change. So why not your tech? Upgrade now during the Dell Technologies Summer Sale event and save on select PCs like the XPS 16 powered by Intel Core processors. You'll be able to bring your most intensive project to life with built-in AI, minimalistic design, immersive visuals, and cinematic audio. Plus, complete your dream setup with deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop at dell.com slash deals, you'll have access to exceptional tech and electronics, plus free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time, only at dell.com slash deals. That's dell.com slash deals, or just click the link in the show notes. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You use the word religion, which is which is interesting because my experience with it, my exposure to it, that word doesn't, it, that word feels weird to me when I think about my experience with Buddhism. Yeah. Um, because when I think about religion, I think about identifying some deity at, at the heart of it and then some sort of like very strict set of dogma that says like this is what's been passed down from the all-knowing being you know like follow this and my experience has been almost the exact opposite like the heads of you know the different lineages that I'm aware of basically all say uh, I'm just I'm just a guy I'm a uh, I'm a person and you know and the fundamental teachings are kind of like look this is what worked for me kick yeah. the tires i don't if you can come up with something better awesome that's exactly it i think not to correct you we'd have to go back and replay the tape but i think i said religious tradition ah okay got it. and this is this is because i'm with you i i don't necessarily think of it as a capital r religion you yeah. know sometimes people say well isn't it just a way of life that you're talking about and yeah i mean this is why i call it religious tradition because it's a tradition of people who have come up with specific teachings mm. that we can study and we can see if they mesh with our experience. And if they don't, then we shouldn't do them. Like it is that kick the tire mentality. And this is something that the Buddha himself said, like, try this, see if this is your own experience. It's my experience, but if it's not yours, then don't take my word for it. It's not dogmatic in that way, but there is a long tradition of religious figures. You know, I, I do think of the Buddha as a religious figure. We have statues of him, even though he said, don't make a statue of me. So there's definitely been stuff like that around it. But it's a long lineage or tradition of people who have just been like, I'm just a guy, exactly like you said. The more exalted I've seen them, the more humble they are, which mm. is such a wonderful tradition to look to. Yeah, it really is. What do you think is driving? Because it really seems like there's an incredible surge of interest, at least you know, we're, we're, we have a lot of listeners around the world, but we're U.S.-based. It seems like we're, where we are, there's been this tremendous resurgence in interest in Buddhism. What's your sense of what's driving that these days? Well, there's two things. There's a, in my mind, there's the tremendous interest in Buddhism, and then there's a tremendous interest in meditation. Those uh, are two somewhat related, but not necessarily the same thing. So let's talk about that. Okay, so... You know, after I graduated from college, I, I served as the executive director of the Boston Shambhala Center. And I would see all sorts of people from and, all walks of life. And that would be, for, for those who don't know, the, sort of the main like a, center for Shambhala Buddhism. Yeah, it's a Shambhala, it's a Shambhala meditation center in Boston. Um, it's got about 200 members and um, lots of people coming through its doors for big events and things like that. And 
I thought, what do these people have in common? And I was like, well, when I talk to them, they tell me a story which sounds like they're suffering. They're going through a divorce. They're going through their quarter life or midlife crisis. They're, you know, in recovery from something or someone. And I thought, well, it seems like it's a bunch of people that have just figured out that they're suffering. And that's, you know, the, the Buddha's first truth was they're suffering. We can look at that. We should look at that. And I'm guessing that, like, everyone that came through those doors had another thing in common, which is they had tried everything else. They had tried drinking a lot and online shopping and dating and lots of, you know, different vices. Wait, those, those aren't all just different schools of Buddhism? No, those, I mean, not yet. <laughs> Maybe someday. <laughs> um, we'll kick the tires and see what works. Uh, but in my experience, it's like those are somewhat temporary distractions. And... Uh, and they say, okay, if I'm suffering, maybe I should, if I've tried everything else, maybe I should at least try this, this Buddhist stuff. Now, as you said, there's also like people, this weird upswing of people who are interested in meditation specifically. Mm. And they may not necessarily say Buddhist meditation. They may not even know that there's like mindful meditation is like a Buddhist thing. But, you know, we've got the cover of Time magazine being about mindfulness. We've got Huffington Post declaring 2015 the year of mindfulness. It's such an interesting time where, as far as I'm concerned, having studied it all my life, it's the rough equivalent of someone tapping me on the shoulder and saying, you know how you used to read X-Men comic books growing up? Like, now everyone's really into X-Men. <laughs> you know, it's like, why are you guys all of a sudden into this thing? I've been doing this for a while. It's actually quite boring when you get into it. But um, it's, it's, as you said, probably where yoga was, 20, 30 years ago, the sense of, well, now maybe we can make this accessible. And it's sometimes even being divorced from Buddhist teachings, which, you know, I have mixed feelings about, but it's wonderful that people want to work with their minds. And I think that's great. What's the source of the mixed feelings about separating meditation and uh, Buddhist teachings? Well, when we're talking about how I grew up, you know, there are some basic principles involved, like the notion of basic goodness, or that I, you know, inherently not a flawed human being. Mm -hmm. We talked about mindful speech. So these are sort of the ethics components. If we divorce the meditation practice from any sort of teachings whatsoever, I feel like we're just taking almost like an exercise regimen and saying it's a religion or a religious tradition, I should say. Um, and it's not. It's, it's different. If someone just meditates, they will become extremely familiar with their minds. They will become kinder. They will become more productive. All of these things that science has now told us that you know, the Buddhists have been saying for 2,600 years. But if they don't study any of the other stuff, it's almost, it's like a stool with, with one leg. They sort of, you sort of need a couple of extra legs around the ethics to actually really have a strong foundation. Mm. And, I mean, it's interesting to look at it that way. You know, my experience, I've, I've had a, a pretty dedicated daily mindfulness, you know, sitting practice on and off for years, but actually consistently daily for probably about five years now. And one of the things that became really clear to me is that the meditation practice is, you know, it's like that famous analogy. It's sort of like, you know, the, the, the mind normally would just be you know, like a water with a lot of waves and ripples. So if you looked at it, you couldn't see through it. And the meditation practice for me, sort of like it calms the surface and now becomes glassy. So you can actually see through it and see what's there, what's inside. But that doesn't change what's inside. You know, and so stuff that was veiled to you becomes, you get a sense of clarity. It, be, it rises up. You can see it more clearly, but without the ethic side, without the 
the, you know, the next question then becomes, okay, now what do I do with that? You know, and my sense is it's the ethics side that helps you sort of like process what comes up. To me, I've always looked at the, the sitting practice more as it's the thing that creates the stillness that allows the deeper stuff to become more apparent. Um, but it doesn't necessarily help me know what to do with that once it becomes so. That's spot on. That's exactly my experience as well. And, you know, I'd be really curious to hear what, what people who are listening to this, yeah. what their experience is with it. Because ethics sometimes might even be a scary word. Maybe it's just like supportive teachings. Mm. It's like when you get to that what next question, that there's something that you read or a teacher you talk to that can say, well, now that we've seen through some self-deception, <laughs> mm. here's something that might be helpful in terms of bringing out the teachings around uh, an open heart and compassion mm-hmm. so that we can actually empathize with others. It's one thing to look at our own suffering, but I found that, you know, it's hard for people to meditate for a period of time without realizing that it's not just about them, that it's mm-hmm. actually about connection with others. Yeah. And then I guess, um, I think I understand better now that you're sort of, your mixed feelings about teaching one without the other, because if you, if you provide a tool to create clarity and what emerges from that clarity is something that may not be easy to process without other tools. Um, exactly. I mean, do, do you think there's actually a risk of, I don't, I don't want to use the word creating harm, but I don't know how, how else to phrase it, of sort of, you know, like a, giving a practice that creates clarity where pain may arise without simultaneously creating a vehicle to process it. Well, it's interesting because we have so many ways of receiving meditation these days. We have apps, you know, and people can sit there and do their app and that's great. And maybe they do have that sense of seeing through the various layers of water and actually understanding what's beneath. But then who do they talk to about it? So I think the role of a teacher or an instructor is actually really important and starting to emerge in meditation today. And um, I will admit that the thing that terrifies me the most in terms of meditation and Buddhism today is that there are a number of people who teach that shouldn't necessarily be teaching. In my mind, it's the rough equivalent of going to therapy for a year or two and then be like, I'm a therapist now. Mm. People that have been meditating for a year or went on a one-week retreat and say, well, this is easy enough to tell people how to do it. I should just do it. And maybe they can even repeat the words that they heard, but the um, groundwork to really work with people in a way that is helpful. In fact, it can be harmful. Because if someone says, well, I see colors while I meditate, they would say, oh, that's weird. You shouldn't do that. Mm. As opposed to sort of being trained in in how this is something that can happen to people. Mm. Yeah, which is funny because probably in the not-too-distant past, if you had said that to me, I would have said, well, you know, this is an an elitist philosophy trying to keep it elitist. (laughs) You know, but I think having developed my own practice over a period of years now, I've come, I, I, I get I think on a deeper level, what can emerge and the need to actually be able to handle that differently and the need to want a teacher who's actually experienced and skilled in helping you process it. But at the same time, I don't want, I don't want those listening to this conversation saying, well, I'm not going to start a practice, you know, unless I can find a local teacher like in center, like right by me, because I don't want to do harm. That's not what we're saying here. No, not in the least. Yeah. I think if someone's interested in exploring meditation, they should try everything that they want. Yeah. You know, they should try the apps. They should try, you know, I run something called the Daily Dharma Gathering with our friend Susan Piper. Sure. And that's live streamed meditation online. 
you know, every single day, different teachers coming online. And, you know, there's different ways that people can connect, either in person, online, through apps, etc. I think people should try everything. I, I, my work, if you had me put it in a nutshell, I do like 12 different things, but it comes down to how accessible can I make meditation? Mm. That's what I do. So I think it's an interesting experimental time and people should kick the tires. I think it's a great analogy. They need to kick the tires and see what works for them. And trust their own wisdom that if someone's a little sketchy, maybe that's not an authorized and trained meditation teacher. And that doesn't mean the meditation practice is bad. Mm. It just might mean that it's not the best person to work with. Yeah. You use the word dharma. Talk, <laughs> talk me through that. So dharma is, I always try and avoid jargon, but we do call the online meditation teachings that we do the daily dharma gathering. Dharma is just a word for the Buddhist teachings or sometimes way, the way. In this particular context, it's Buddhist teachers. You know, there's many different types of meditation. There's Vedic meditation, there's Kundalini meditation. I come from a Buddhist background and this particular group of teachers, it's about 25 people from Zen, Vipassana, Tibetan traditions, all sorts of traditions, really. And every day they offer a talk, Dharma, teachings of the Buddha, and a guided practice. So that's basically pretty straightforward. That's pretty straightforward. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's just, yeah, you hear, there are a couple of words that always get massively thrown around in popularity. Uh, Dharma is one of them. Karma, Karma. is the other. Yeah. Can we go there? <laughs> we, we can very briefly. I mean, you know, I'm, I have you a can't great deconstruct honor the entire of, um, concept. Of <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I'm giving a a talk at the Rubin Museum next month on karma and climate change. I was like, let's just. Apparently, we're just going to do two giant scary topics <laughs> together. <laughs> Fine by me. Let's do it. Maybe um, that's to like neutralize each other. Right. <laughs> like People walk out with like just shaking their head, despondent. No, in Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche has the most delightful description of karma that if you plant a peach tree, you're going to get peaches. <laughs> and if you plant pears, you're going to get pears. And there's something about that. You know, within the Buddhist world, there's an understanding that there's many lifetimes. So not, it's not like a one-to-one equation where I trip someone by accident and then someone accidentally trips me three weeks later. It's not that straightforward. It's like it's got these, all these other ramifications, and a lot of it does revolve actually not just about unintentionally tripping someone, but actually intentionally doing stuff uh, that is either harmful, meritorious, or not meritorious, uh, virtuous or non-virtuous. And at the same time, if we're kicking the tires... And I'll say something very controversial. I don't know if I have many lifetimes. I have not experienced many lifetimes. I don't have memories of them. So within this lifetime, there's ways to look at karma and say, well, what seeds am I planting on a day-by-day basis? If I'm sitting around fuming and jealous of someone and slandering him or her behind their back and all of these things, that's planting pretty specific seeds in terms of how I manifest, how I'm perceived, what communities I take part in, all of it. It's just creating our world in some sense. Whereas if I actually engage in a lot of practice and I try and use my speech skillfully, then maybe that's a different sort of company I keep, different sort of actions I take part in, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just in some sense, what are we planting in terms of our day-to-day life? Yeah, I think that's the the lens that I've seen it through. But then there's sort of like the, there's the next layer, which at the risk of opening up... <laughs> Uh, a deeper, more nuanced conversation. 
if you buy into the idea of karma and you buy into the idea of potential past lives, what of the concept of free will? And, and does that also, does that on the one hand inspire you to write action, but at the same time inspire a certain sense of utility because, but I'm, you're telling me I'm bound by the, the actions, you know, like good or bad. I know we shouldn't use those words to label it, but just for really simplicity's sake of, you know, something that my, that, that has happened in a lifetime before, and I'm now going to pay penance. You know, you look at the child who's born with age, you look at, you know, and, and, and then you also look at if a certain amount of what happens in this lifetime is bound by, you know, a, a past one, do I actually have free will? Yeah. Um, it's, I struggle with stuff like that a lot when yeah. I start to think about it. You know, if we buy into this first noble truth of the Buddha that everyone suffers, it's just the way things are. And it doesn't have to be, it's like once we acknowledge that, we can then move on. So if someone experiences a lot of loss in their life, I, you know, when I was 18, I lost 18 people within a year oh my God. that were my uncle, my grandmother, a kid I babysat, a school teacher. It goes on and on and on. And, you know, I thought, gosh, you know, if this is, it was right when I was really getting deep into the Buddhist teachings, I thought, this must be karma, right? Like something, all these negative things are happening to me. But the flip side of karma, and it was Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, the person my parents studied with, that said this. He said, everything is predetermined until now. So I could make my life about how I am suffering. I could make my life about complaining. I could make my life about wallowing. And I can do that to some degree, right? Like I can feel, the Buddhism is not like don't feel your emotions. You should feel your emotions. In fact, if you're meditating, you feel them all that more strongly. But at some point you look up and you say, what do I do now? And you know, I run something called the Institute for Compassionate Leadership. And it's been interesting because it's, it's a nonprofit that works with young people and they're trying to find ultimately their purpose in terms of their career. And a lot of it's social. We focus on people that want to do social change work, whatever that might mean. It could be working with kids. It could be working um, in government, anything. But in this class in particular that we currently have, there's people who have suffered tremendously, people who uh, were born into very difficult households, people who are cancer survivors, people who are former sex workers, people who either through birth or through various situations in their life ended up in very difficult situations and have suffered tremendously. And then they said, well, what am I going to do about this? So if everything is predetermined until now, they had this moment where they're like, now I want to help others. Now I don't want people to suffer the same domestic abuse I suffered when I was growing up. And there's something so incredibly moving about working with these people because they are going to do tremendous work. They have the inspiration. They have the fuel having gone through the hells of the fires of these hells that they've lived. And now they want to make sure that they can be of benefit. So there's always, yes, we can say, okay, this is my life. I'm suffering. This is horrible. And really stay in that vein of karmically, I'm screwed. Or karmically, things have gone this direction this far. How can I actually do something different that might take it in a different direction? How can I look at my own mind, my own heart, and use the tools that I do have in this life to really be of benefit. Mm, yeah. 
This story is presented by Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA produced by ACAST Creative. 25 years ago, Invesco QQQ rethought the investing landscape by providing access to the NASDAQ's 100 most innovative companies all in one ETF. With Invesco QQQ, investors saw all the possibilities that innovation could deliver. Personally, I had a wake-up call in my 30s that led me to invest deeply in myself to unlock new possibilities. I walked away from a career as a lawyer, overhauled my lifestyle through mindset and exercise and nutrition, and completely reimagined my career. And it was unsettling at times, but that investment in my potential allowed me to live so much more creatively and with purpose and passion. Invesco is proud to sponsor the new Ways to Win podcast, hosted by longtime coaches and mentors Craig Robinson and John Calipari. So in Ways to Win, the coaches use their on-court wisdom to solve for off-court problems and help you find a winning formula for success. In this clip from the show, we'll hear Craig share his advice for weighing a decision to switch from investment banking to full-time coaching. Let's take a listen. The advice that I would give somebody who's weighing a decision that is less risky or more risky, I always tell them to work back from what they're wanting to accomplish right? What the reward is, what's at the end and work back and try and set yourself up to get to where you want to get to. Because sometimes taking a risk is the right thing to do to get something that you want. And what I try and counsel people to do is not be afraid to take risks. Because if you set yourself up properly with a good education, a great network of friends, and you've got family behind you, you can usually weather most storms if things don't work out the way you thought they'd work out. So listen to Ways to Win wherever you get your podcasts to get more wisdom from Craig. Nobody knows what's ahead, but one thing's for certain. You can access tomorrow's innovation today with Invesco QQQ ETF. Let's rethink possibility. So thank you for listening to this special story brought to you in partnership with Invesco QQQ and produced by ACAST Creative. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more defined investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco is not affiliated with ACAST Creative. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. That, that we're both authors, and, uh, and I want to talk about some of the stuff that you've worked on and, and actually your forthcoming book soon. My last book was fundamentally trying to do exactly what you just said. So 
I don't know about you, but very often when I write, I write to answer a question I have. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I get, it's like a blessing that I actually get somebody to actually pay me to spend <laughs> to time. To figure it out. Yes. Figuring out my own questions. <laughs> and then write it out in a way that I hope, you know, like helps other people simultaneously. It's not a bad gig. But, you know, my fundamental question was, I kind of feel like I was... Um, creativity and creation breathe me you know like whether it's painting whether it's building businesses whether it's like i i'm always creating something from nothing which means that i i am sort of constantly putting myself in a state of enduring and long-term uncertainty and for years as much as i love building stuff and creating things i would experience that as you know there's blood in the water and i would just kind of feel like well that's the way i'm wired so the way my mom's wired and at one point when I was younger, you know, like my mom actually had a short conversation about it. We're like, hey, we always get what we want, but there's always a lot of blood in the water. By the time we get it, it's just our lot. You know, that's the way we are. And I kind of hit a point where I said, really? Does it have you know, to like, be that Really, way? really? Because I see a lot of other people doing, you know, like building big stuff, creating bodies of work and taking big risks and living this place for a sustained period of time. There is a lot of suffering. There is a lot of pain that goes along with it. You know, like physiologically, what, what the research shows is we're not wired to be okay there for the most part. But then there's this thin slice of people where they're okay. So the question became, is that genetic or is it trainable? And what I realized is for a really small sliver, it's likely their, their brains are different. But for, for most of the ones that were actually relatively okay there, it's trained very often without even realizing they're doing things to train it. You know, and that became this moment for me where it's kind of like, huh. Well, then maybe, maybe I don't have to suffer that much moving forward. Maybe it's not actually my lot. Yeah. You know, maybe there doesn't have to be blood in the water. It's just, it's all I've known up until now. And in fact, my practice has been a huge part of allowing me to keep leaning into this deep, uncertain, creative space and being much more okay there. You know, I don't think I've ever articulated this before, but just in response to that, if I had to say, why meditate? I'd say meditation, in my experience, is the best way to train in uncertainty. Mm, I totally agree. <laughs> and the other flip side of that is it's the best training in how to love. Because mm. I think just the one of the crucial areas of our life is actually being in relationship to others and opening our heart to them. And so I think there's flip sides of this. That, you know, I'm at a point right now, and I'll be brutally honest where I am facing probably the most uncertainty in my career thus far. You know, I'm opening this meditation studio. That's, I, you know, I, I actually have this like running joke that I'm just like, a, I'm a simple meditation teacher, but it's like all of a sudden these giant projects are sprouting up. And this one is deeply terrifying because it's so big. Mm. It's so big. We've got this beautiful space on eighth street between university and fifth. And there's, all of these things around architects and contractors, and I'm just a simple meditation teacher. I do not understand. But it looks like it's going to be this beautiful space that houses 20 teachers who teach different types of meditation, Buddhist teachers, Vedic teachers, Kundalini teachers, all sorts of people who have that knack for making their traditions really accessible. And uh, we're offering it in this like drop-in yoga studio format that, I, as far as I know, hasn't really been done before where people can take 25-minute, 45-minute classes with that goal of, like, I just want a taste of what this is. Mm. I want a taste of that meditation. And the thing that's terrifying is, like, meditation takes a little while for people to figure it out. Yeah. So 
in the same way that people might jump on the treadmill and be like, I ran for a day and now I'm not 10 pounds thinner. What's running's wrong. I, I'm doing running wrong. It doesn't work for me. Meditation's like that. So it's sort of a terrifying business model, but I'm also excited. And it's also opening my heart in a big way. Mm, yeah. It, it is a model fundamentally steeped in delayed gratification. Yes. Isn't that funny? So Which, I was like, why don't is, I do some business yeah. model delayed gratification? It's like, let me figure out, what's the business I can build that will scare me most? Yeah. And this is exactly it. This is like the biggest experiment I can think of in terms of taking those traditional teachings off the mountain hmm. and making them accessible to anyone that wants to do it. Like our whole thing is we want to make meditation accessible to everyone in New York City. Hmm. Anyone that wants to try meditation, this is the space for it. That's our idea. The other thing that you brought up is love. Yeah. Is meditation's role and love. Take me deeper into that. This has been my fundamental discovery. And it's in the same vein of what you were talking about in writing a book. So the book that is coming out is called How to Love Yourself and Sometimes Other People. And I had been bombarded. I don't know if you get bombarded in this way, but people write me and 90% of the time it's like, here's my relationship thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> As if like I'm a relationship expert. I'm not, I'm a Buddhist teacher, you know, like okay. this is. What's funny, what's funny is the emails I get most often are, here's my business problem. And the moment you look at it, you realize this isn't a business problem. It's a personal problem. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Very often it's like, it's a hard problem. It's a soul problem. It's a heart problem. Yeah. So I get a lot of heart problems and I thought, all right, I got to sit down and do this. But in order to do it, is me asking my question of like, what does meditation do to you? And meditation allows you to become really familiar with yourself. And the way that people spin out and stop meditating because it's too much is because they start beating themselves. They think they should be better at it. They try it and they're sitting there being like, oh, I'm the worst. I can't even stay with the breath. Everyone else looks like they're totally still. I'm the one that's like getting it wrong. And then they leave. But if people can actually make it to that point of gentleness where it's like, oh, you know what? I'm sure everyone else is struggling my mind goes at 100 miles an hour. Maybe I can just get it down to 80, 60 miles an hour. Maybe that's progress. Maybe that's okay to just settle a little bit. If we can actually do that gentleness aspect, meditation becomes a path of befriending ourselves. It's just a path of getting to know ourselves better. And the more we get to know ourselves, the more we're actually able to love, both loving ourselves, and then that leads to the foundation of actually loving others. And that's the fundamental thing about this book you know it's written with this wonderful woman megan watterson who comes from a christian theological background and when i read her first book reveal i was like oh she's talking about basic goodness you know she uses words like divine worth divine feminine and the words might be different but we're talking about this basic intrinsic wellspring of love that is within us when i talk about basic goodness and i say oh we're basically good we're basically kind what I'm saying is we're basically loving. And um, to keep referring back to my teacher, Sakyong Mipam Rinpoche, in one of his books he says, you know, we love love. This is innately who we are, that we are innately loving beings. And we're, we often struggle with that uncertainty. We often get scared and want to hide that. But if we can actually do some of the meditation practice, we would discover we don't have to do it. We don't have to do that habitual thing. And if everything is predetermined until now, this very moment, if we can actually look at ourselves we can befriend ourselves, love ourselves, and be more loving of others. Mm. And, and I think also, uh, it's funny, because I, when I had the opportunity to sit down with Sakami Rinpoche, that was one of the questions that I, that I was curious about, because he is a 
big defender of the assumption that people are innately good. Yeah. <laughs> and I had this question for him. I was like, really? <laughs> and the way he deconstructed it was kind of similar to what you said. But it is a leap for, for a lot of people, I think, to actually buy into that. Huge leap. And it comes from what we were talking about earlier. I think a lot of us were raised in a culture of you're not good enough. And you need something external to you in order to be whole. You need this sort of job or this sort of spouse or this iPad, and then you'll be fine. But then, of course, what happens is, you know, you get that job and there's somewhere else up the, up the ladder that you should go instead. You get that spouse, but isn't that person over there actually much more attractive? Mm-hmm. You get that iPad and it's outdated in six months. You know, there's always something more we could do. So the idea of looking inward and saying, maybe I'm innately whole as is. Maybe I can develop confidence in that. And then maybe I can offer a sense of um, confidence in our, in our loving nature to others. That's pretty, you're right, it's a huge leap. But what's the alternative? Like buying lots of iPads? Mm. Filling our space with lots of mindless entertainment? I think this is it's a meaningful leap to make. I completely agree. The other sort of thing that I was, um, the, other, the other question is, you know, are we good enough is one part of it. But even more stripped down, are, are we innately good? Because uh, I think my sense is that a lot of the experience of growing up in Western world is people are actually innately bad. They're innately selfish, mm-hmm. and we live in a scarce world. So your job is to win, you know, because they're trying to win by taking from you because it's all about, you know, it, it's not a compassionate, abundant oriented world. It's you know, like the fundamentally, you know, like left without laws, we are innately bad and destructive and self-centered and it will end up in mayhem and death and, you know, like insanity. And, you know, like, and thank God we have laws and, you know, of you know, rules of order to stop that and force a baseline level of goodness and respect and sort of like ethical propriety to exist. I think that's the fundamental assumption of yeah. that, that, that sort of most of us grow up in. And, you know, someone sitting here being like, yes, that's the way things are. I would yeah. just like to ask, how's that working out for you? You know, it's, I think a lot of us, I, I've had times in my life where I've given into that. You know, people are fundamentally horrible. You know, who's really looking out for other people, really? And those were really difficult times for me because there was a lot of struggle. There was a lot of me trying to, like, throw elbows and put myself first. And it's just, it's exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting to live that way. So the sense of vulnerability, which is ultimately what we're talking about, you know, the sense of willing to put ourselves out there and get hurt and sometimes connect with another human being in an authentic way and not get hurt. I mean, it's a grand experiment. It's an absolute experiment. So that's sort of the invitation in this book, How to Love Yourself and Sometimes Other People. It's like, can we make ourselves vulnerable? Can we live our lives in a way that's based in opening up as opposed to shutting down? Mm. Yeah, it seems like the world needs that more than ever right now. Yeah, which is, you know, I joke that there's some of us Buddhist teachers, we're really busy running around like crazy trying to get people to slow down. <laughs> but this is, I think the world does need this basic tool of self-examination, looking, befriending, and loving ourselves, 
And that's why, you know, we're opening Mindful, the meditation studio. That's why we've got the Institute for Compassionate Leadership. That's why we do the Daily Dharma Gathering. That's why we've got this book. You know, it's just, can we please, please, please start to look at our suffering, but also look past that to the fact that maybe we can have an experience of peace. Maybe we can have an experience of space and develop confidence in that instead of struggle. Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, a good place to come full circle. And it's interesting also in this frame because... To Justin the, Bieber. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, is there really any way to wrap it? <laughs> Moving beyond the Bieber cat. Um, I always wrap these conversations by asking one question, which is what does it mean to you to live a good life? And what's interesting is when I ask that question of uh, Sekhan Mipam, his answer first, you know, he went deeper into it, but the first words out of his mouth were to be brave. Hmm. And it seems like that bravery, what he, the, the frame for that was underlying to take the actions that you've just been talking about. Be brave enough to step outside of your assumptions that we are all bad. You know, be brave enough to step into a place of vulnerability and to do something that moves beyond the, the confines of just you. So if I offer that same question out to you, what comes up? Well, when you initially asked it, I thought um, to show up for others authentically. And it is, it's, it's very much connected to that sense of bravery. Or, you know, flipping it around, that sense of willingness and vulnerability to just be with what's going on. So, yes, there might be painful situations. Yes, it might be pleasurable. But can we actually just show up when we're in a conversation with someone, listen to them? When we're on an awkward first date, be with that awkwardness. Be with that human being. When we're holding a loved one's hand in the hospital, just be there instead of trying to fix everything all the time. So giving up that sense of struggle and relaxing into the present moment, which is you know why we do the meditation practice. Why I'm such a... You know, I was going to say Bible-thumping Buddhist, but, you know, some sense of um, wanting to make this accessible because it's such a beautiful tool for allowing us to relax into our life and show up authentically without those guards around our heart. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining in this week's conversation. You know, If you've actually stayed till this point in the conversation, I'm guessing there's a pretty good bet that you've gotten something out of this episode, some some nugget, some idea. If that is right and you feel like sharing, then by all means, go ahead. We love when you share these conversations and get the word out. And if you wouldn't mind, I would so appreciate if you would just take a few seconds, jump onto iTunes or use your app, and just give us a quick rating or review. When you do that, it helps get the word out, helps let more people know about the conversations we're hosting here, and it gives us all the ability to spread the word and make a bigger difference in more people's lives. As always, thank you so much for your kindness, your wisdom, and your attention. Wishing you a fantastic rest of the week. I'm Jonathan Field, signing off for Good Life Project.